this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. There's simple mathematics behind it. When you're not taking a 25 to 30% commission from the driver, you can basically reduce fees by, let's say, another 10 or 15% against Uber or the rest of the competitors. So once you reduce those fees, you're literally the cheapest option in the market without harming or without taking away any earnings from the driver. So the driver still makes more because you just split up that commission figure into two halves. So it's cheaper, but the driver still doesn't miss out. They're still making more than any other platform. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, 28th of April. Um, we are back. We took two weeks off. Um, it was the Easter holiday in Sydney, Australia, or in Australia, I should say. And it's uh, probably a, a relatively um, big holiday, not from a, not from a um, religious perspective, but from the fact that we get Friday off and Monday off. And then a week later, there's another public holiday called Anzac Day. And it, so it lands up being a bit of a tricky time of year. So we took two weeks off. I hope you enjoyed the repeat episodes of some of our previous podcasts um, in episode um, the last two weeks. So that's episode 89 and 90. Today we're episode 91 and we have a fantastic show coming up for you. I had a really interesting chat with Zeriab Chima and we're going to be playing that later on in the show. Uh, Zeriab is the CEO of a company called Hop. Now what makes it interesting is a few things. Hop is taking on Uber and as you know Uber is super well funded and is doing very very well and Zeriab's only 20 years old. Okay, so I had a fascinating chat with him, um, and uh, and uh, I loved sitting in front of a, a twenty-year-old and asking him his top experience, his top tips for entrepreneurship, which was really fantastic. As usual, I have my co-host with me, who is the design lead at Manage Flitter and soon-to-be Manage Social, Kate Frappel. Kate, thank you for joining us. No worries. Good to be back after the holidays. And. Um, uh, as usual, we kick off the podcast uh, talking about some tech stories. Of course, the last week or so, about a week ago, was the Facebook Developer Conference, F8, which has evolved into a two-day spectacle. I mean, it started many years ago as being one of these developer conferences that spoke about you know, how developers can make use of the API and what they can do on Facebook and things like that. And there's still a little bit of that that happens of how you know you can layer um, bits and pieces on top of it it's but it's become essentially a two-day um, vision sharing of a vision of Facebook in a way of what their vision for their own products and and in a way even the future of tech um, you know what their view of future of tech is yeah definitely um, I think so last year they seem to be concentrating on uh, VR and this year they've made a big um the major theme, I guess, is augmented reality, so AR and... Uh, and we all know why that is, though, right? Because they're building glasses. Because they're taking on Snapchat and Snapchat... Oh, yes, and definitely. S- and Snapchat were the first to have those AR filters. Definitely. And, I mean, and their um, big announcement at this particular conference was that they're opening up their API to uh, certain developers to add in Snapchat-like effects. And then those the most interesting and fun ones will get implemented into uh, Facebook's products. So not just Facebook, but also Instagram, Messenger and WhatsApp. Yeah, and I also saw they, um, you know, they bought Oculus Rift, which is a VR product. And they announced that you'll be able to, or they, they're releasing a, a beta version of a product where you'll be able to hang out in an environment with some of your Facebook friends. 
sounds a little bit like Second Life. You remember that that app, Second Life, which was a virtual a virtual world um, that was that did very very well for a long time, but it obviously didn't have the glasses aspect side of it. So they announced that as well. Whole heap of announcements. If it's actually worth going and and looking at the whole the whole list of announcements that they um, that they made. They also sort of spoke about some. Um, brain user interfaces that they're experimenting with, right? Yeah, so basically Facebook are envisioning a future where everyone is wearing uh, these sort of AR glasses. So like everyone has a mobile phone now, everyone's going to have these glasses and the problem that they're going to face is that once you've got these glasses on, you don't want to be actioning things and programming it with a remote so you, and you don't want to be able to touch the glasses either because you can leave fingerprints and marks and things like that. So they're working on something similar to Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink where mm-hmm. your thoughts and eye movements control the glasses. So basically you'll, you'll be able to maybe train it and think, well, if you think of um, accessing the admin panel, right? And you would train it that every time you think that it will pop yep. up an admin panel in front of you. Exactly. Um, now, this technology has been around for a little while. I mean, uh, in the 2000s, they had gaming interfaces where if you, where you could train uh, something you put on your brain. Or you, if you say, move left, move left, and it would train that every time you move left, it would move the cursor left. Yeah. So, this technology, it's, it's been bubbling around, but then it, it hasn't really hit its, its sweet spot. But that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think in many ways, Facebook is um, envisaging a post-mobile phone world. Yep. Yeah, so these glasses will be, uh, I guess, the next logical replacement for a phone. So we'll all just be walking around with AR glasses on. We'll be able to switch things on, switch things off. Instead of typing or saying, um, you know, what is the GDP of Australia? You just think, what is the GDP of Australia? And um, It appears in front of you. It appears in front of you. You know what's going to get really interesting, Kate, is... um, Hacking <laughs> is going to be really oh. interesting because you, you hack into someone's device and you can see what they're thinking and, you know, they've got their brainwaves and it's going to – we're heading towards um, Minority Report yeah. future, right? That movie with Tom Cruise where – I can't uh, say I've seen it. It's worth seeing. It's worth okay. seeing actually. It's a, it's a little bit mind-bendy, a little bit trippy. Maybe it looks a little bit dated now but I think if I remember correctly, they would arrest people for pre-crimes, right? So thinking if, of a crime. If people were thinking of and were going to do a crime, they would know it and they would arrest them before they... Um, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. it brings up a lot of food for thought in any case. Yeah. And, it's, and it's got Tom Cruise in there which um, he's a good actor. Um, I think... Um, or in terms of just thinking about the capabilities, uh, Mark Zuckerberg sort of went through the three categories mm-hmm. of AR. So they were information, digital objects and enhancements. Um, so information, for example, could be while you're driving down the road if you want directions, so directions appear overlaid on the image of the road. So in front of what you're seeing. And can help you drive safer, right? Yeah, I, I just did a, a long drive in parts of Australia. Now, what, how, where that would be really useful would be especially at night. Now, we've spoken about all the self-driving stuff in the past, but what would be really interesting is if the glasses had night vision, but I don't necessarily have night vision, but it would alert me to animals. Animals on the roads mm. in Australia are, are a big, big problem, right, especially at night. And if it would just alert you that there's... It, 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 if it would, would increase your field of vision, 
and alert you. It could be incredibly useful, even during the day, right? Because you're looking ahead. There's something going on on the side. There's a lot of the time you miss it until it's in front of you. That's true. Right. So that definitely can help with that. So what else did he say? So the the information, that's sort of almost like contextual information. Yep. So that one's the first category. Second was digital objects. So... um, Let's say you could leave a virtual post-it note on your fridge mm-hmm. that uh, other people in your household could see and you could take it down, but it doesn't actually exist. Right. So you only see it if you've got the glasses on. That could be a lot of fun as well, right? Definitely. And there's like a whole um, avenue where people can be doing art projects and graffiti on all sorts of surfaces um, and, yeah, and reusing that space because it's not actually real. Mm, interesting. The second one. Uh, the third one is enhancement, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, an example for that one would be if you went to a restaurant and you opened up the menu. On top of the menu would be reviews, recommendations from your friends on what they ate and what was bad and stuff like that. So you're enhancing the experience that you're actually having. I think this technology is going to be fantastic and I think it's, you know, just like we struggle to live in a world um, without mobiles these days. You know, I went camping in a place that's got no mobile, no cell phone signal and what was interesting is people loved the aspect that people weren't wandering around distracted staring at their phones Mm. but they would get frustrated when they would be having a discussion even around, I don't know, say there's, you see an animal, an Australian animal, and suddenly you have all sorts of thoughts about this animal and you want to find out more, right? Yeah. What is this animal? Is it dangerous, right? And suddenly people are like, oh, we can't Google this. We can't, we can't go down there's that path. There's not enough information. You know, and there's not enough information. So I think this whole AR um, world is going to take that even to the next level where mm. we can calibrate, you know, how much sort of ambient information we get sent to us. For instance, we'd like, you know, you could walk through New York and you could calibrate it to get, um, you know, notified of interesting historical places just as you're walking. But you could calibrate it to ignore places of maybe religion or something, you know. And yeah, you would if have, you didn't want to know if about if it. You didn't want to know about it. Or you could, um, of course, the, the privacy issues and, and the security issues are massive. And, and uh, you know, I've spoken before in the podcast what I see as the government, the role of government in society. And this is, again, is, is I see as one of the roles of government is to stimulate debates around these ethical issues and discussions and even standards and protocols. And, you know, it's, it's gonna, they're going to bring up very, very big issues that, that we're not even talking about yet, putting in, um, you know, procedures and policies. And uh, we've spoken as a theme, whether it's Internet of Things or whether it's, you know, virtual reality or whether it's, um, you know, all these tech or self-driving cars even. You know, we need, we need ethics committees to have deep, you know, discussions or, or robots with guns, you know, yeah. and saw another video yesterday, I think, uh, from Russia with a robot with a gun, you know, like, why are we talking about this, right? Yeah. A uh, robot with a gun is a lot more dangerous than a human with a gun because you can't really take it down, right? It's very, yeah. very difficult to take it down. At this stage, though, uh, well, I'm assuming anyway that the robot, robot can't action anything unless it's told to. Whereas a human, you can't predict what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, 
we'll it's interesting debate interesting debate which we should be having more of what was anything else out of f8 so that's a, a lot uh, if you're interested go just just google uh, facebook f8 conference a lot of interesting bits and pieces facebook share price um, liked what he had to say it's heading towards 150 dollars the share Great. price right they listed at I think it was, I can't remember exactly, $22, $23. They're now nearly $150. They're doing a lot right. For all for all of their criticism, they're doing a lot right. So, um, Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest takeaway from there was their camera effects platform, which we spoke about initially, where they're sort of letting developers come in and go crazy with AR. It's going to be fun. And they are, uh, of course, piggybacking off Snap, Snapchat, who were the first one to, to develop those. Mm. Um, and people love them. They still love them. I, um, so that's uh, Facebook F8. Uh, what else is happening? There's uh, the reality of... Flying cars. Flying cars to a degree, <laughs> right? There's a German company that's developed something that's called... Um, um, what's called Lil- uh, they're called Lilium... Aviation, and uh-huh. they've uh, done their first test flight of an all-electric uh, two-seater. Uh, I guess it's, it's a jet, but um, sort of functions similar to a helicopter, where it uh, vertical takeoff and propels forward. But it's supposedly smaller, cheaper, faster than any of the planes we have now. So it's closer to a car. And it's self-driving, right? Although they said the first versions will have pilots on them. Yeah, so their their test run was remote, so they didn't mm-hmm. put any humans in there. Uh, when they uh, sort remote, of so not not quite self-driving or yeah, self-flying, sure I should say. It's, it's yeah. So then they're going to put humans in, uh, and they've got a few safety precautions. So. A some parachutes. I love that where it said. <laughs> I, I love that said um, where it said. Safety is a major emphasis. Um, while the startup is working toward having its aircraft pilot autonomously, it intends to use human pilots in the meantime. There will be parachutes on board and something called the Flight Envelope Protection System, will prov- which prevents the pilots from performing maneuvers or flying the aircraft beyond safe fl- flight parameters. Read, you know, yeah. a Top Gun pilot that suddenly tries to do <laughs> loop-to-loop with you inside. They won't be able to do that. Um, it says the plan is to eventually build a five-passenger version of the jet. Yeah. And they're currently uh, using a battery similar to Tesla. Right. But it doesn't – confusingly, it's not actually a car. So you can't actually use it as a car no. and then it turns into a plane, which is what I want, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's like the Jetsons. <laughs> Basically, you know, yeah. you want you, you at times you want a car, at times you want the plane, because then because they still would have to, in a way, um, going to put helipads on top of every building. Yeah, you would still have to get to the helipad. Yeah, right. You, you can't, and of course, um, Uber's working on its own version. So, of course, the vision for companies like Uber um, is to have self-driving everything that you'll be able to. Now you can choose your black car, your normal, your taxi, your sharing, and one of the options will be the self-driving planes, right? But um, but safety, yeah, they, they. I think it's still a little way to go until this is tried and, and tested. And people have the confidence, I mean, to get in... Um, I mean, I was in a plane last year, at the beginning of last year, about a 15-seater in northern New South Wales, near Byron Bay, on the way back to Sydney. And this plane had some engine trouble. 
and we had to immediately go back to the airport. And it's just psychological, but being in a small plane, boy, do you feel a lot more vulnerable mm. than than being in a big plane? You know, I mean, it just I think the the pressurization in there. What do they call it? Yeah, e- yeah. equalizing. No, you're yeah, right, the it's um, definitely not the same. Small planes actually stuff up my ears right. a lot worse than larger planes. Right. And what what they, they don't say what um, altitude they'd fly, right? It says here uh, maximum cruising speed of 183 or 300 kilometers per hour and a range of 300 kilometers, which is quite quite decent, I guess, for small. Um, the craft is powered by 36 separate jet in- engines mounted on 10-meter-long wings. It doesn't say um, how high it flies, but it's definitely... Um, the way of the future. I actually emailed them a while ago trying to get an interview and they said they're not doing much press at the moment, but we'll see if we can snag an interview with them at some stage. But I would imagine it's it's a little a little way away and may become like a novelty-ish first, but like a lot of technologies start off as a novelty and then they come into the mainstream. But we'll put a link on the show notes and there's a video there and it's, um, it's, it's quite exciting. But um, would you get in one of these? Uh, not straight away. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, maybe if there was a pilot, yes, I'd be more apprehensive if it was self-driving. Right. Um, pilot, yeah, good chance I would give it a go. Particularly these ones too. The interesting thing is they, uh, they're trying to make it super accessible to everyone. So it's not just something for the rich. Um, they quoted like a taxi, for example, from Midtown Manhattan to JFK Airport is now 55 minutes and about $55 and they could convert that to a six-minute ride in Uh one of these planes. Uh, Oh, no, five-minute flight, sorry, and a $6 fare. Six dollars. Six dollars. Well, that'll be pretty that amazing. That would be enough to make me try it. <laughs> but you know what, though? I mean, the, the commercial aircraft industry has been going for, what, I don't know, 80 years, 100 years, somewhere around there. And it's taken this long to get the safety right. And yeah. it's incredibly safe now. I mean, it's remarkably safe. It's probably the it's probably the safest way to travel in the commercial jets, right? I'm not yeah. talking about the private flying. Um for that to get to that level of safety because unfortunately um, that can only happen after crashes. I mean, with the com- with commercial jets, after each crash, they investigate and make recommendations and make changes nearly after each crash. Every crash. You know, so... why it doesn't happen very often. So n- yeah, now it's, you know, they, they're so safe. But for these little ones, there'll be, you know, I don't know, birds and again, hacking if it's self if it's um, you know all autonomous and not, and it's someone hacks into not it, not to mention the infrastructure costs of of putting those helipads and the ability to fly around a city. I was thinking about this earlier and um, whether there's even a use case to have uh, these like flying personal jets and self-driving cars. Like if you're going to put infrastructure into self-driving cars and people aren't driving, traffic moves quicker. Do you need the plane? Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. It's not for those, and and maybe trains and cars are a better solution for those short distances. Then. Definitely, I reckon. Yeah, safer, um, more predictable. It's a it's a two dimensional issue as opposed to with planes. You've got three dimensions because there's height as well. Mm. Um, but anyway, it's it's interesting that it all comes into the mix. And who knows? Maybe in five years we'll all be zipping around with our with our parachutes on our back. Right? It comes with a free parachute in there. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would like to see 
self-driving car that also turns into a plane like the Jetsons. Yeah, totally. Then that's that would be cool. And a boat. And a boat, yeah. Right. And, and it's got fast Wi-Fi inside. Yeah, we have to though. And it's got a little vegetable patch inside where you can... A vegetable patch? Yeah, that you can <laughs> whip, whip up a fresh salad from, you know... A little, a little food in inside, inside there. By then we'll be having like uh, pills. Pills. You could just ask the plane for the pill. It'd present you with the pill, then you think you ate a salad. You can even put your augmented reality glasses on and look at the salad while <laughs> eating the pill. <laughs> now you want to do something. <laughs> you can see that app, a salad app, right? It's yeah. just, it's just you, you, you take the pill, and maybe there's like fake salad that. You can just rewash, but it gives you that. Um, maybe mm. it's impregnated with nutrients, so it will feel like you're eating salad. That's true. But it will give you that texture. Um, yeah, can you imagine like a, a substance that you could just chew forever? Chewing gum. Nah, it's not the same. Not the same. No, like like permanent lettuce. Permanent lettuce. Okay, I'm going to reflect on that. <laughs> um, you, you're listening to episode 91 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about, chat about everything relating to technology, startups, entrepreneurship. We're going to take a short break, and after the break, um, we're going to play my chat that I, I had with Zeriab Chima, who's the CEO of Hop, which is an Uber alternative. And uh, Zeriab is only 20 years old, and I had a fantastically interesting chat with him. Uh, stay with us. Hi, this is Dave from Manage Flitter. Are you interested in growing your Twitter account with real followers? Manage Flitter's power mode feature allows you to search for keywords in tweets and bios. It also allows you to copy your competitors' followers and filter out fake accounts. Go to manageflitter.com and sign up for a pro or business plan to start growing your Twitter account today. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. We checked about everything relating to technology, startups, um, the software industry, entrepreneurship. Now, one of the companies that we cover quite a lot and have done for a couple of years, or even more than that, is Uber. Now, Uber's an interesting company in that it's uh, just been disrupting transport. It's been, uh, yeah, you know, causing havoc in different countries. There's been protests. Uh, the taxi industry has been a uh, typically an established industry for quite some time, and, and Uber's been, sh- um, you know, ruffling its feathers. But it, interestingly, um, here locally, where we based in Sydney, Australia. There's another startup called Hop that is tackling the transport side of things and the taxi service on demand um, locally through a a bit of another angle. And I'm happy to say right in the studio, which is exciting because we don't have all that many in-studio guests. Most of our guests are via Skype. It's Zeriab Chima, who's the CEO of Hop. And we're going to chat about um, his startup. Zeriab, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So I'm sure... Hop and Uber get used in the same... It's, it's one of the first questions people ask you, right? Uber's got an incredible brand name. Everyone's heard of Uber. Uh, tell us... Um, give us a big picture um, view or, or, or sort of synopsis of what does Hop do? And particularly, it will probably help people if it's in relation to how it's similar or different to Uber. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think around the world you have um, competitors who are competing in this sort of ride-sharing space, as we call it. So around the world there's there's multiple players. So there's Didi in China, there's Lyft in the US, there's uh, Ola in India, GrabTax in Southeast Asia. So the list goes on. In the Australian market, we lack that sort of competition. So where Hop sort of plays in is it partnered up with a rental car company called Hertz at the moment. So Hertz has 20,000 plus rental vehicles out on the road. Um, and so what we intend to do is to use those unutilized assets in a different way so basically anyone over the age of 25 can rent a car through us get on the road and start driving as they would on any other ride-sharing platform but there's a few key differences the first thing is for a driver it's 100% of all fares so we take no commission so unlike other ride-sharing platforms which take 20 to 25% commission we don't take that but they do have to pay for the car right they do the rental cost is on their end on the driver's side right um, as well as the fuel cost let's just say right so those right. two costs are attributed to the driver's side so they have to pay for the car and the fuel exactly but anything they make on the rides is theirs is theirs absolutely 100% 100% of fares so right. that's a massive plus point for drivers but I guess the question a new driver would ask is that, okay, so I'm already driving with, let's say, Uber or the other platforms. Why would I switch to you guys? Uh-huh. You know, that sense of security. So what we do in t- uh, initially is we guarantee $300 per day to be with our system. So basically, if you take one ride or 10 trips, we'll still give you $300 as a minimum guarantee per day. So you feel that sense of security to join a new platform, a new system as a driver. Now. Making that type of backing of $300 per day, I mean, A, you need to have confidence that um, there's going to be demand for your service, but B, you're going to have capital requirements to to fill in the gaps when you're going to have to, um, you know, uh, make up for those quiet days. Have you raised funds? Are you bootstrapped? Tell us a little bit. Go a bit um, um, into your backstory yep. of how you came up with this idea and uh, what's been the path so far. Yeah, I think it was about a year ago that we were in discussions of this sort of paper ID, right? It was on paper. What would make the difference? It would be something that's good for the drivers, something that provides choice to consumers as well, though. So it has to be cheaper, um, high sort of efficiency of the solution itself, better cars, um, and uh, I guess a lot more um, more trained drivers on our end as well. So that was a model itself, very simple. low co- Keep the costs low, but give high benefit to drivers. So a year ago... You thought of this idea, yep. the company didn't exist, no. there was nothing, right? Take us from there. Okay, yeah, so from there, we, um, I got in touch with Hertz uh-huh. and uh, took did us you just Did you just... Out of the blue? Out of the blue, cold, email him yes. to say hi, because it, for people listening, they might not realise, how, how old are you? 20. Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> I mean, I remember being 20. I mean, people don't, um, it might have gotten a bit better, but people don't take you really seriously, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. that's an interesting point. So um, this being my second project, so my first project was Taxi 24-7, which obviously runs in the black cab sector in London. Uh-huh. So that was at 15. So uh-huh. I had a bit of, um, I guess I, I had a bit of know-how, <laughs> not a veteran, but a bit of know-how around the market. But I think the number one thing is um, to bring credibility, you sort of have to just step into the game and uh, without that fee element being present. So when I did approach Hertz, it was through a very simple email to one of their directors um, uh-huh. in Australia, and they were quite happy to proceed with it. It does take time, uh-huh. but as long as you, you show them that you are serious, you're not just having a crack at it, you're actually full-on um, serious in getting into this sort of market, that's what gets them excited. Fantastic. And so you had this idea, you, you emailed Hertz, yep. um, and 
and tell us, you know, are you guys bootstrapped? Have you raised money? Well, what's what's that side of things? Yes. Been happening? So a few discussions later, we managed to engage a few sort of high, like you know, I guess uh, some people that I had from our previous projects. So Andrew Morello, the winner of the Apprentice Australia, uh-huh. is also a friend and co-founder. Um, so he joined. Um, then we had Stuart Cook, who's a former CEO of Zambarero, uh-huh. the global CEO of that. So they both joined, and I had a lot more credibility, I guess, on the back end to raise capital. So we raised our first round. So um, you had some angels. You had some angels back you. Some bit of angel funding. Oh no! So that they were just friends, board members that joined. Right. Okay. Yep. So advisors, colleagues. advisors, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So once they joined, that does give the whole solution credibility. It validates right. the model. So then you have to raise capital. So we raised our first round of capital in November last year. Uh-huh. Um, so we raised out a valuation of 1.5 million pre-money. Uh-huh. Um, so that was good. That was successful. Is and it, um, are you comfortable saying how much you raised or not? Uh, we raised a few hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So from there, it was all about now proving the model itself, be on a small scale. So let's say uh-huh. five to 10 cars in a row, let's prove this model does work. It can work. So we did that quite well in the last few months. Um, and now um, we're in talks with for, for our second round of funding, which will be at a much higher valuation. So raising um, a few million dollars in this case. Um, and that should go through hopefully uh, quite soon. Um, is that from uh, local local backers or international? Yeah, so local high net worth individuals. So it's not we don't approach venture capitalists at the moment. Uh-huh. So it's uh, with high net worth individuals who are within, I guess, our network circles, um, but local, locally based. So give us a snapshot of perhaps this last week. How many rides took place? How many drivers on the roads? Are you only in Sydney at this stage? Absolutely. So in Sydney, we only concentrate in the eastern suburbs, so very uh-huh. concentrated at the moment. Um, I guess some some start um, data for you guys to sort of look at um, is that we had 400 plus signups from drivers to register with our system. Uh-huh. But the drivers that are on the road at any given time is between six to 12 drivers per night, depending on what night it is. Right. Um, and then other than that, we've completed, I guess, a few thousand trips in the last few months, but that's during, during our pilot phase since 14th of November till now. So it's being used quite well. Um, from a user's, from a passenger's yep. perspective, um, is the price comparative to the taxis and Uber? How does it how does it rate? It's a, we pitch it as a um, cheaper solution in the market. Right. So in terms of pricing, so the, I mean, there's simple mathematics behind it. Uh-huh. When you're not taking a 25 to 30 percent commission from the driver, you can basically reduce fares by let's say another 10 or 15 percent against Uber or the rest of the competitors. Right. So once you reduce those fares, you're literally the cheapest option in the market without harming or without taking away any earnings from the driver. So the driver still makes more because you just split up that commission figure into uh-huh. two halves. So it's cheaper. But the driver still doesn't miss out. They're still making more than any other platform. So a big part of Uber's success um, has been that they've developed a fantastic app. Now, um, it's very easy to make a simple app. It's very complicated to make a, a brilliant app, particularly that scales. Who's working on your tech um, and um, you know what's your what's your plan to to scale that tech out? Yep, absolutely. I think that that's a very valid point. So around the world, when we look at these competitors, they have very strong tech teams that are competing against Uber effectively. So um, in our case, we use a company called Altaros, who are the same engineers behind companies like Toyota and the biggest manufacturers. So they develop that sort of self-driving software. So they're really into that tech. Mm-hmm. They develop everything from software to hardware. Mm-hmm. So um, Altaros is one of the world's biggest engineering firms, and we've we had a nice close relationship with them for the last few years so I've used the same engineers from that which we've now in-housed a lot of those guys so to our team so your products uh, it's available Android Apple yeah so we have the um, iOS version out there on the market Mm -hmm. but with the Android version it's being piloted at the moment so it's still going through its bug phases so there's going to be issues obviously just got to iron out the kinks 
Terrific. I'm an Android user. I'd love to. I live in the eastern suburbs. Yeah. I'd love to give it a go. Yeah, but here's the brilliant part about it. You don't just need the app to get a ride. So you can uh-huh. actually get a ride without the app. And that's been the disruptive side to it. Uh-huh. And that's intentionally being done. So, for example, you're out at Kuja Pavilion on, uh-huh. on a Friday night this evening. Um, and you see one of our cars present there with the hop flags on either side. So that's how it's visible. Right. So it has the word hop on it. So you can approach one of our promised staff who are there around five to six cars. There'll be one promised staff standing there advertising the solution approach them and say I want to get a ride they'll just ask for your name your pickup and drop off location a contact number and off you go that is literally or legally a booking so you're off you go grab a grab a ride and that's it you don't even need to download the app itself because I believe the um, the new laws yep. is that taxis have a monopoly on on hailing hailing yep. and um, so other services you can't hail them so how does this so how does this, I mean, because that sounds like you're sort of hailing them, right? Yeah, so looking at the regulations, a gray area there. So with regulation, um, so if we look at two years ago when this new regulation came into effect, it was based around the Uber model. Effectively, that's what it was. So it was based around how do we regulate a company like Uber, but nothing beyond that. So the few points that did, they did miss out on were things like, um, so a booking itself is is literally what I've just said. So the first name, pick up and drop off location, a contact number. As long as that's provided to before getting into the vehicle, that it's in itself is a booking. So as long as the driver's not the one touting or asking the customer to get into the vehicle, it's a customer that approaches the vehicle itself and provides that information before entering the vehicle itself, then that on its own is a booking. Interesting. And uh, you're at uni? Yeah, I am. What yeah. are you studying? Um, economics, double major, so economics and accounting. Okay, and um, so you still got time to sort of have a life? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I think at university it's quite interesting. So as soon as I got into this project, um, I started to get involved on the entrepreneurship side of university as well. So uh-huh. first year I started to speak about what entre- entrepreneurship was. So from my story, the element of that. And then I started to back the Sydney Business School competition called Sydney Genesis. So to fuel that sort of movement at university so we can actually have more entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs taking on those bigger companies um, without having that sort of fear element present. Have you ever been tempted to to drop out of uni? Now, I know, you know, it's, 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 there's a, a mythology around so many of the entrepreneurs, whether it's Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, that they sort of start uni and then they almost get frustrated with the pace and the rigidity of it and they're such free spirits and they, and, and, and they leave it. I mean, you sticking with it? What what is your th- um, your attitude to be into that? Yeah, so I mean, for the uh, so this was a three year degree. So in the first two years, I was full time, uh-huh. um, which is effectively not a lot of days. It was just about three days at uni, uh, with a few hours spent. This year, I've switched to part time. So I mean, as much as I try to stick in there, I think it's just about an attention span. So as soon as I get sick of it, I might just sort of move away. But at this stage. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot around the education element. There's that stigma. I think it is true, though, that it does lag behind. It is lagging behind, um, effectively, where entrepreneurs need a different sort of education. That's where universities sort of fail. Sure. So we're seeing I think that a the, lot. Be, the, the best way to learn entrepreneurship is by doing it, right? Doing it right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So so you used to live in London? Uh, no, I know. I live in Sydney, yeah. But but your previous... In and out of, yeah, so I, I fly in and out of London. Um, so we my previous project was based out of London, yeah. Right. And you did that while you were still in high school? I was in high school. So we launched it um, in Sydney to test it around in Sydney, Uh but it wasn't the right market fit. So I think that time you're going through a bit of a change within the taxi industry anyway. So London was a good fit because I guess 20,000 plus black cabs, they don't take card payments, cash only. So that sort of behavior meant we could disrupt it a lot easier. So we just stepped into that market instead. 
And did you create a uh, uh, UK entity? Or? Yeah, so it was a separate UK entity that we set up and uh -huh. we just launched a product in that market. And that you mentioned that product's still going. It is, yeah. And that's, so is that is that your product still? It's yeah, so it's quite self-sufficient. So basically right. when you've, um, it's a payment solution that pairs up with the app itself. So a small payment Bluetooth enabled device uh -huh. that you can tap and go your card against. So that to, in, the, in the black card market is quite unique. While in Australia, it's quite normal to be paying with contactless or credit cards. It's very normal here. But there it's quite different because for so for the last, what, 50, 60 years, it's only been cash in hand. That's what the black card market has been. But now it's taken a turn. So we introduced a system there and that's quite, you know, it's, it's sort of operating on its own with low involvement from our end. But it, it operates and I don't take any direct involvement on that part. So my focus is in the Australian market right here. Now, Zara, but... Zeriab, I'm sure I've got people listening to this podcast that might be double or triple your age that are probably feeling a bit sheepish while they listen to this podcast, while they're exercising, driving their car, because you're 20 and you're just getting on with it and you're making, you're making stuff happen. I mean, what would your tips be to someone of any age, right, that um, wants to, you know, so many people say to me, I want to have my own business, I want to be an entrepreneur, um, you know, I wish I could do what you're doing. I mean, you're doing it at a, at a very young age. What would you say or, or, or something? I mean, you, you know, every entrepreneur um, feels resistance, right? Yep. But some sort of push through in different ways. So give us some of your thoughts around um, actually just getting out there and doing it. Yeah, I think there's three P's to stick by. So passion, persistence, and pivot. So passion, you know, you, you should do what you love, right? So any project you do, um, it should be hard and soul into it, right? So persistence, just keep going with it. There'll obviously be a lot of roadblocks on the road. Um, so with, you know, things like funding, that's a, that's a massive um, issue for most entrepreneurs. And the third is pivot, right? If it's not working, you have to pivot the project. So for example, if I launched an app in, in the Australian market and it just wasn't fitting into the market, um, rather than just give up on it, I can just tweak it a bit and make it fit, make it work. So I think that sort of attitude you normally do win out at the end, um, but it's always a it's always a long term sort of play anyway. So I think it's the way you think about things that matters, rather than what you're doing right now currently. And were you born in Australia? I was, yeah. And um, I mean, do you? How do you feel? I mean, you're still pretty young, so I guess you know your your context. But um, you know, do you feel that Australian entrepreneurship? You've obviously dabbled in the UK market. Yeah. Um, how how do you feel that the the sort of spirit of entrepreneurship is? sort of evolving in Australia compared to some of the other markets? Yeah, so I think um, when we look at the US, it's it's very sort of venture capital heavy. So we mm -hmm. look at US as if um, that's where all the money is. And that, that was true to some time. Um, and looking at the Australian market, it lacked a lot of venture capitalists who were looking to get it, um, give it a shot, give new startups a shot. What we saw recently in the sort of last five or so years is that venture capitalists in Australia are backing startups but still, I guess where that division or where that sort of barrier is, is that they're backing startups that have some sort of, uh, you know, good good run on the board. So that's what that's what I guess is the difference here. So we're not backing, um, you know, those those big ideas that um, are risk taking and probably have a low chance of winning. But if they do win, they probably win out big time. So we're not backing those stuff, and that's where we lack. So the venture caps in Australia are really still moving towards where they should be. So that's where the US is still ahead of us. But we probably would get there in the next sort of five to ten years. Are you a coder? Do you no. Code? So I, although I do know everything in that sector, my sort of you know I would probably side on the business side rather than the tech side. And and that's I think also a useful point for people listening to the podcast because you know the Silicon Valley model is you know coders 
building their own product and getting some funding. You don't have to be a coder to build a tech business. You do have to understand the lay of the land yeah. and understand what the difference between iOS and Android and web and native and non-native and, you know, PHP versus Node and, you know, skill yourself up in, in, in the lingo and the lay of the land, but you don't actually have to be an engineer yourself, right? That's right. So that's absolutely right. So I think understanding something is quite important. So you should understand your product in and out, you know, back to front. But um, being a complete expert at building that product itself from a tech element isn't isn't necessary at this stage. So what has um, what has been your greatest challenge so far as an entrepreneur, Pers- um, personal or business? Yeah, yeah. I think it would be finding the right people around you. Mm-hmm. So I think surrounding yourself with the right people is probably the biggest challenge you can face. Um, if you look look back at the last five years that I've been in entrepreneurship, so I think um, it takes time to develop relationships to, to develop that trust. But then there's two ways of going about it. So the first is being resistant, so being a bit fearful and saying uh, maybe you shouldn't trust everyone that you come across. But the second um, thing that normally does work for me, which is the second option, which is to trust anyone, give them a chance and see if that works out or not. So it, it probably won't work out, but if it does, it, it's it's a long-term thing. So, you know, when I met Andrew Morello, um, who's, you know, as I said, is, you know, a, a nice supporter of this project. He's on board completely. He's a board member. I met him a few years back um, and it was through casual discussions that took, I guess, the last two or three years before we were in business together, like before we were trusting each other. So it takes time, but surrounding yourself with the right people goes a long way. Who's, um, you know, been the biggest influence on you in your journey, whether it's uh, people that you read about or personally in your life? I mean, you mentioned some of your your advisors, which they sound like they... They, they've been a, a great influence and help. Any other uh, other people, known or unknown? Yeah, I think from a high-level perspective, so if we're looking at, you know, past entrepreneurs, for example, I think people like Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. um, the founder of Amazon. So I think the reason why he's different is because he didn't have a co-founder alongside him, so mm-hmm. he was a sole founder, um, and he built a company up uh, against, you know, all odds. But I guess why that's, you know, companies like that are interesting, but other companies that I find, or entrepreneurs I find interesting is guys like Steve Jobs. The mm-hmm. reason why is, uh, you know, back then you had, uh, the way I see this market is that you had IBM, IBM effectively the Uber of, of today. Mm-hmm. Um, so IBM was this big, massive company and Apple still took them out as an innovative company. So IBM was a disruptor in, at that age, but Steve Jobs still gave it a chance. Um, and then he took Apple from you know, being a, a normal sort of company into one of the biggest innovative companies in the world. Do you meet with other entre- young entrepreneurs? I mean, I started my business pretty young as well. And, and I remember at the time, I was in my 20s, not as young as you, but I remember one of my frustrations that I had was meeting people that were also young. I'd go to networking events at that time in Australia, at least startups weren't a thing. It was about small business, SMEs. Um, Do you meet many other young entrepreneurs? And I I mean real entrepreneurs. uh, And I'm I'm not knocking people that want to perhaps try to start a business, but actually someone that's in there with their boots on, you know, forming partnerships making a bit of revenue, anyone else amongst your peers that are doing similar things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, that's the most important thing. So learning off those people directly. So um, there, there was this movement that I pitched at, which was called the Entourage. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the entrepreneurs sort of gathered around as well. So I, I had a chance of meeting those entrepreneurs and just following on from that um, on a regular basis through these networks that I have, I get introduced to other people who I'll just sit down and have a chat to. So these entrepreneurs who've built successful businesses in the past and have now sort of retired they could be of all different ages that's what happens so different individuals that i come across um who are quite inspiring to listen because 
essentially everyone does go through the same thing, but we just don't realize it. Uh, we all think our stories are different, but they're quite similar at the, at the end. Absolutely. I think that's uh, very, very true. We all, we all think our stories are different, but they're all very similar. How does your family um, you feel about um, you diving in so young into, into entrepreneurship? I mean, I think a lot of, uh, you know, there's the stereotype of families wanting their children to be doctors and lawyers and accountants and architects, you know, allegedly, quote unquote, safe. You know, what's their view on, on you getting into the taking on Uber, which alone, I mean, Uber's, Uber's powerful, you know? I mean, I mean uh, um, Travis Kalelnik, he was on Donald Trump's board of advisors. I think he resigned, but I mean, you know, they 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 are strong incumbent, right? Yeah, I, I think. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is that you've had a lot of companies in the past. I, I think every sort of 10, 15 years, we come across this this wonder player. Uh-huh. We think that this is it, right? So, I think looking back, we might say that eBay was you know tech giant, untakeable, but companies like Alibaba disrupted that field quite easily and quite nicely. It does take time effectively. But I think that's where the, that's where the sort of um, exciting part is in the challenge. And I know, you know, Andrew Morello works for a company called Yellow Brick Road. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the host mortgage, of that. Mortgage. Uh, yeah, so wealth management. Right. So um, Mark Burris is the one that heads up that, which was the apprentice host. Um, and I think the one thing that I really like about him, and I've, I've met him a few times, I've like, I like the fact that he says um, that he actually finds you know, when companies are going down and, you know, it's, it's the toughest time for any CEO, but he actually enjoyed that the most. So he loves the fee, whole element of, you know, dealing with the fee itself. Mm. So, you know, taking on banks, for example, is, is the hardest thing, but he's doing that quite well. Um, looking at any other, looking at this market, it's probably the hardest market in the world, right? The ride-sharing market with Uber, this big giant in, in the market. But effectively, you have companies like Lyft who've proven that there is a chance to take them on. Mm. Didi took them out in China completely. Um, I think what we miss is that these drivers, you're betting a $69 billion bet basically on drive behavior, on consumer choice. Drivers can switch from one platform to the other platform quite easily. When we had that Trump saga happening, you had 100,000 plus users each day um, leave the Uber platform. Mm. So it's, it's very interesting to see that once you provide drivers with a choice, what happens then? If you can provide a sense of security, like let's say you know tomorrow we were capital loaded and we said to 1,000 drivers that we could switch you from Uber or taxis, to our hub platform and we would guarantee some sort of revenue. I'm quite certain that they would switch over. It takes capital, it takes a lot of work, but it can happen quite easily. So uh, that's what's interesting. Yeah. Where you guys have been lucky so far as well, and not to take away from all your good work, is that Lyft isn't in Australia yet, right? Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. So. Uh-huh. Um, I think so. A lot of people are predicting that Lyft would enter a market like Australia, mm-hmm. but what we know is that Lyft goes through an acquisition model. Mm-hmm. So there's a few similarities that people sometimes miss out on. So this partnership with, or this sort of arrangement with Hertz, isn't globally unique. So um, in San Francisco, Lyft and Hertz have a similar arrangement. Right, I there. didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Lyft uses um, their underwriters for insurance are Marsh. Right. Our underwriters for insurance are Marsh as well. Right. So we use the same payment company, Stripe. They use Stripe as well. We've intentionally lined this up because Lyft goes to an acquisition strategy in each market. It's not about competing with Uber. That's that's where sometimes mm. it gets mistaken. It's finding really your own path. Providing a choice, but this isn't a long-term play where we're going to be, you know, a 20, 30 billion dollar company. It's more about build it to a point where you can actually then form an alliance, form an or do an acquisition um, deal with guys like Lyft. So that's what Lyft is doing. So in every market they have an alliance going on. So with Didi, with Ola, with GrabTaxi, with Get, they actually are forming a bit of an alliance and that is a very powerful thing. In the Australian market, there is no one doing that with them. So it's a very empty market and that's where the opportunity came up. 
Have you been in? Has anyone from Uber or Lyft uh, ever been in touch with you? We are in touch with the guys at Lyft. Mm-hmm. Um, with the guys at Uber, I mean, it's, it's just a bit of banter, but um, mm-hmm. we've had a bit of fun seeing each other. But right. other than that, there's there's no sort of you know discussions happening. So you 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 never answer directly the question about your family's attitude to not becoming a doctor, right? Yeah. No, no. I think I think that's yeah. So I think that that might just be um, you know one of the sort of things that you might think of, but. Uh-huh. My parents would never um, say, you know, they wouldn't force me towards one direction. So you've had support. Yeah, absolutely. So I think since the age of 15, when you step into entrepreneurship, they understand that that is going to take up a lot of your time anyway. So um, it's, you you know, you have your own path that you can create. So I think if we look back and say that would I have been better going down the sort of academic path, like full-on academic path, Uh choosing one of those career-motivated things, or entrepreneurship, I would still say entrepreneurship. I know my parents would say the same as well. Are you from an uh, entrepreneurship-type family? No, no. So, I mean, it depends on the way you look at it, right? Uh So um, my my parents, you know, we haven't built successful businesses, nothing like that, but small business owners, that sort of stuff, Uh Um, starting from the ground root, um, very, you know, I guess – people who've come from a very different background where we've started from zero, basically. You have to build yourself up. So we come from that sort of background. I think that's where we're cut from the same cloth in terms of Andrew Morello, who comes from that same background as well. So, um, you know, zero, started from zero, basically built himself up to what he is today and same thing with Stuart Cook. So I think surrounding yourself with similar people is also quite helpful and that's what I've done um, quite well. There's also a bit of a fallacy that, that I hear about, you know, that most people in business, they, they come from fancy pedigree and fancy education. And, it's, and, and in my experience, it's actually not true. It's, it's pretty much what you've said. And most people that I meet that have had success, not all of them, but a, a large proportion have started with zip and have just built it up step by step. Yeah, I think it goes both ways. So you guys like, let's say, Evan Spiegel, Snapchat mm-hmm. um, sure. founder. Um, yeah, he's come from a well-off family. And or even himself. Bill Gates or but, even yeah. Mark Zuckerberg to some degree. But that's why I credit guys like Travis um, mm-hmm. from Uber that he's come from, you know, his parents were you know, door-to-door salespeople, mm-hmm. a very, you know, he's, he's worked hard. To, to give him that respect, he has worked hard. And I think there's no rivalry at the end of the day. We're building our own tech companies, but he has worked hard in terms of what his background is. So he's built himself and the credit does go to him for establishing an understanding sure. about ride sharing. So sure. he's done that well, yeah. Sure. And I, I remember San Francisco in the days before Uber and it makes a lot of sense that Uber came out of San Francisco because to hail a cab in San Francisco was just so ridiculously difficult that it was just, you know, and he was the one that, that actually just took that, you know, step and gone, wow, obvious opportunity here. But absolutely, he's done a great job and uh, people don't realize how difficult it is to, to build up a business of any size. And even, you know, when you're on the radar of... Uh, you know, legislators and, um, you know, governments and, and all of that and powerful industries like the taxi industry, it can't be easy. Self-driving cars. Um, I mean, if I was a driver and I was to say to you, hey, you know, like self-driving cars are just, I mean, they, they hear really. It's, they're not even on the horizon. They they hear. How's that going to play into your strategy? Yeah, so there's different ways of going about the self-driving car issue. So I think it's an issue because um, the current drivers around the world, the millions of ride-sharing drivers around the world, are thinking that they will lose their jobs effectively. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's that's just probably one way to think about it. I think so you're looking at an asset that has to be owned by someone. So let's just say um, there's a hundred hops 
self-driving cars, for example. Um, we're not going to be – it won't be a smart decision for a company like Hop to purchase those cars. Why not get drivers, individual drivers, to purchase those cars and then benefit off that rental income by being at home? So that's a different way of going about it. So basically you're getting drivers to fund the operation side of purchasing those vehicles. They can own a vehicle effectively, mm-hmm. but those vehicles on the road can pick people up because obviously it's self-driving and they can earn a cut out of that uh, um, because they own the car and we can get our cut for being the platform that provides those rides. But but the outlay will have to be a lot. Sorry, what was that? The, the outlay to buy the yeah. car will have to be, it's not like a driver can have nothing and become a driver and rent one of your cars. Yep. But if those cars now have no drivers, um, to make money they have to potentially buy an asset that's income producing, yeah. which I suppose they can get financing or things like that, but it's it, it's quite a different... There's, there's, I guess, I mean, that's what the Tesla sort of ideology was. So they've, they've seen it as different things. So you can get a driver to rent a car, for example, to pay for that rental itself. So rent to own sort of thing where they can still benefit. As long as there's some sort of funds that the driver has to put in, just like renting a vehicle, because it's the same concept, right? So let's say you're paying $60 for our, on our platform to rent a vehicle each day um, to be driving and earning money. Mm-hmm. If you had to do the same with a self-driving car, we can right. be at home and pay 60 well, that's still making money for you. Right. There's, a, there's a lower cost gotcha. there. Gotcha. So you'll just rent the, you'll rent the car, not drive it, and perhaps say if you're in an area where you know it's it's, it's popular, you'll have the car around there, or whatever, however it will yeah, be yeah. set up. Yeah, yeah. Inter- interesting. Any other thoughts on... Um, I mean, is the self-driving and the, the Teslas and... I mean, the, the Hertz cars, I assume, that are rented out, they, they generally, like, you know, Toyotas or Hyundais or... Yeah, so the cool thing about Hertz is that, you know, look, giving giving them some respect, they've been a 150-year-old-plus company. Uh-huh. And for them, in the last few years, to sort of step into this sort of innovative play of ride-sharing, et cetera, is a massive move for them. But I do know that they are fully supportive of our project um, and they do throw a lot of support behind it. So... If we were to go down the self-driving path, they do have a nice buying power behind them, so they don't just um, choose particular types of cars. Other rental car companies as well, we could somehow work out a relationship where we can have those vehicles on the road. And the interesting thing is that the Australian regulation is very, very different. It does lag behind, but it has left a big, a few big loopholes mm-hmm. to actually even effectively have a self-driving car out on the road even tomorrow. So there's, there's a few loopholes that have been left and we've raised that with them. And it, it's, it's just that at the end of the day, innovation and legislation don't always go hand in hand. Um, legislation does lag behind innovation quite a lot and that's, that's happened around the world. Because I believe um, what, self-driving cars are legal in, what, 13 states in the US? In the US, yeah. Um, and here they technically not legal yet what what's the loophole yeah so um you can so it depends on what environment you're looking at so uh-huh. I, okay so if i'm driving on, on the road um and i have a self-driving car um which is enabled to self-driving i can have it in in sort of um semi-autonomous mode right. so that's again that's, that's legal pushing the boundaries exactly that's right. pushing the boundaries but then there's nothing to say I can let go of the steering wheel and let, just let it drive. Right. And that's where it gets a bit grey then. Right. So I think that's where legislation just needs to clarify of what environment I can actually test those vehicles in. So, for example, I think there was one of the states in Australia where Google was testi- testing out their self-driving cars um, on a very small level just because they like the Australian environment, which is a very big plus point. Um, it's different to the US. You've got different climates happening all in one day and it's a very massive plus point to actually test that vehicle. Plus you've got open roads. Um, you've got, you know, there's places where there's less dense population as well in Australia. So all those plus points make Australia a very nice play to have self-driving cars here first um, than anywhere else. 
interesting. Zerab Chima, the CEO of Hop, um, fantastic story. We're going to follow your progress and we wish you all the success on your journey. I think you're on a, on a good path. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with uh, the It's a Monkey podcast. Kevin Garber, CEO of Manage Flutter. Kate Frappel, design lead at Manage Flutter. Kate, um, Zeriab certainly um, going at a million miles an hour. Yes, yeah. He can, uh, he's a very smart guy, but he also talks very quickly too. I had to listen to the interview a few times to catch some of the things he said. His mind obviously works very quickly and it's very, very bold uh, taking on Uber. And um, I think Zeria is a great example of how even in a place like Sydney, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, can't get a business going. There's not enough funding and this and that. And Zeria done it, right? He's doing shit. Yes. Yeah. Hats off to him for, um, for picking picking out something, finding the right people to work with and advisors and just running with it. Just doing it, you know, yeah. just doing it with entrepreneurship. You just got to, there's no, there's no formula. There's absolutely no formula. You know, you can be young, you can be old, you can be rich, poor, educated, no degree, five degrees, you name it. You know, mm. it's just, it's just about getting on with it. And um, I think he's definitely going, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about him because if he's achieved this much at 20, um, we, we're definitely going to be, um, it's going to be an interesting, you know, I'm almost envious when I chat to him, I think, wow, you know, it's one thing in life is limited is time, you know, and when you're young, you can, you can take more risks and that is the time to do two things. It's the time, being young is the time to learn and it's the time to take risks because you've mm -hmm. got time to recover. You know, when you, when you get older, risks become harder because you can't bet the farm or, or because you don't have that much, if it doesn't work out and there's always a very high likelihood that these uh, initiatives don't work out, you don't have much time to recover from them. So being yeah, young, sure. you've got that huge, huge advantage. Yeah, you seem to have more to lose as the older you get. You definitely do. And it's a different type of stress. Um, it's, it's a different type of um, concern, I guess. And that's even why the cliche on a, on a sort of political level of conservatism tends to be, you know, I'm, I'm being very general here, but, you know, the, the, the stereotype that older people are more conservative you know, because they they hanging on to something, whereas younger people have nothing to lose, so they progressive and pushing for change. That's very um, true. And you know, that's that's t as people tend to accumulate things on and have children, and your know, status quos become more meaningful, particularly if they work in their favor. You know, definitely. The other thing I really liked um, about him was that he's still studying, still traveling. Uh, this is his second business, so he hasn't thrown uh, all of his eggs in one basket mm. per se. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard and Steve Jobs dropped out and Bill Gates dropped out. Guess what? You're not Mark Zuckerberg. You're not yeah. Steve Jobs. <laughs> you're not Bill Gates. You know, that being said, you know, the world's a very different place. You can learn so much these days. Some of the smartest people I know 
um, have dropped out as well. And not because a lot of them drop out because the institution itself just just grates them so much. You know, not because they're not enjoying learning. In fact, the opposite. It's just the institute. I mean, there's a saying from many years ago. It might have even been Einstein who said it that it's amazing that curiosity survives formal education or something like that. You know, meaning that formal education yes. just can just really just kill our passion for something. Yes. I can I can uh back that up. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think we all can those that have been t- to uni and I, you know one of the areas that's ripe for innovation and disruption is education. I mean, it's oh, just I'm just waiting for it. I mean, there's there's it, it's you know, if we can gamify it or just uh, you know move it all and I know there has been some move to online and YouTube and everything else, but I think um, Duolingo, you know, apps like that, you know, that's how we're going to be learning in the future. I think sitting in front of a room, sitting in front of a lecturer at um, that credentials might be good, but teaching ability is ordinary and for an hour at a time in these big blocks, looking at a big textbook. And it's, it's even not the best way to learn. You it's know? not. And at the same time as well, you know, the the first step, I believe anyway, is just to keep updating those syllabuses. Like they're so outdated and the world is moving so much quicker than than what the universities are teaching. You know, that they I don't know, they need to find a way to iterate quicker. Yeah, and I think which I chat about I chatted about to some of the developers in our team earlier this week. And I think the challenge is in our industries, it doesn't um, not many people are attracted to higher learning, you know, so they probably struggle to to find that balance between people with relevant expertise. And um, so it's, it is, it's an issue. It's an issue and the piece of paper still means something. And that's probably even why people like Zeriab um, still studies. And, um, you know, you, it can, you can meet peers and, you, you, you know, it, can, it is still good for getting fundamentals. But I think we all leave university with the feeling it could have been so much more. Oh, and, you know, unless maybe you're lucky enough to go to a top tier, um, you know, a Stanford or Harvard or, you know, they MIT or something, you know, but for, for us mere mortals hmm. um, where we go to other institutions where we, I know I was left feeling the same, that this, this could have been so much more. Definitely. I mean, when you're saying about the, the value of your piece of paper or your transcript at the end of the day, to me it's, it's a key. It's literally a key because a lot of... Uh, job interviews and stuff they it's one of the criteria that you have to have this piece of paper you have to have done minimum three-year degree um and to tick that off you've got to go through this education process but the stuff that you learned at uni versus the stuff that you're going to learn through practical experience just it doesn't add up yeah what i say to people when they ask me advice i say look get a degree as quickly as you can right so if it's two and a half years or fast track it get the piece of paper, check that box. And, and there are instances where it, where it might not make sense. And if it's making your life so miserable that, you you know, you can't sleep at night, then, yeah, leave it today. We're lucky, you know, when I grew up in um, Johannesburg, South Africa, um, it was very hard to get ahead without a degree. It mm. was. It was very, uh, very difficult to get ahead without a degree. And there was essentially only one university as well. Wow. And if you didn't get into that university... It was high stress because if you didn't get that into that university, there weren't that many options as well. Yeah. You know, so there was uh, HSC was a, a pressure cooker for that reason. And now in Sydney, at least, wow, there's all sorts of pathways into universities, and that's a whole other issue—the quality of mm. them, which I'm very critical of. 
and they've turned them into businesses. And of course, we all know what happens then, but we won't get into that. But yeah, a I think argument. <laughs> I think um, Zeriab certainly smartest uh, to to go down to go down both paths. And we wish him all the success. And uh, and uh, I should download the app. He said, I think he said Android was coming. Did he? Android's coming. iOS is out. Did you, you did you iOS. did you try? Did you download it? No, no, I haven't downloaded it. Well, I don't live in the eastern suburbs and mm. currently it's only really working in the eastern suburbs. So It's a bit denser there. And for people listening, if you're listening out of Australia in the eastern suburbs is around near Bondi Beach suburb, which is about 20 minutes to half an hour from the Sydney CBD, sort of where the densest, probably one of the, probably the inner west and eastern suburbs and the west probably the the densest densest, yeah i found interesting though that he said was uh their point of difference being that they can uh for example well his example was at coogee pavilion that you could book the ride with one of the sales reps and then hop in the car Mm. and that that was like a, a technicality on the law because you didn't book it uh Inside the cab. Yeah, you didn't hail it. You didn't hail it yeah. and you made the booking outside of the vehicle. Ah, such a technicality. <laughs> but <laughs> I think the taxi council is gonna not going to be happy with that one. But, no, um, but it was just interesting that they'd done their research and figured yeah. out where that loophole was. And that's and what you got to do as an entrepreneur. Yeah. you got to, you know, in America they use the word hustle in a good sense of the word. I think Australians, they get a little bit, I see when I use the word with Australians, they get a little bit of a reaction. Their eyes get big and they're like, oh no, I don't do anything. And it's like, you know, hustle in America is it's like you... You, you get smart. You you do what you need to do and you move forward, you know. And if that means just finding a way. Yes. Um, it's, it doesn't mean about breaking the law. We never, I never believe that's the answer. You either find a way or you find a way to change the law, which I guess Uber's doing. And for that, you need deep pockets, which Uber has, right? Deep, deep pockets to uh, to pay fines and, to, and go to court cases and all sorts of things like that. Um, but it's possible and it's done and it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's happening. So anyway, we wish Zeriab all the best. That's uh, Hop. We'll put his details up um, on the show notes. We're going to call it a show, episode 91. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please email us, tweet us. We love to hear from you. We're going to be back in a week time. We're trying to keep these podcasts weekly. Um, so we're going to be back with episode 92 next week. You can, of course, always go to itsamonkey.com, uh, listen to past episodes. We've had some great interviews over the last couple of months. Um, and have a good week wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining us. See you later.